Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best leaders in the world to help you scale from 1 million to 100 million, from 100 million to 1B, and from 1B to 1.3. As we know, we have been obsessed about bringing the best of the best to help you scale for in each stage uh, of growth. We are in very special times nowadays, so we are kind of adapting and pivoting the podcast to how to navigate in war times. And we are much more talking in the, in the segment today of 1 million to 100 million. Uh, we have a very special guest. Her name is Leanne Kemp, uh, the CEO at Everledger. And uh, Leanne, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And uh, yes, yeah, so let's get to know a little bit more about, about yourself. I know that uh, you are involved in, in a lot. Um, you have a, a huge experience, a huge and amazing career. So let, let us know a little bit more. How did you end um, founding the, the company and uh, where you are in, term, in terms of stage of growth uh, at the moment? Yeah, sure. So I'm um, a self-taught engineer. My accent is very clear. It's from Australia. So I'm broadcasting from my from my home in Brisbane. Um, you know, I've worked in RFID technology in the mid-90s, which was radio frequency identifications at the silicon chip and inlay level. Um, I've had a number of companies. I guess one could say I'm a serial entrepreneur, which just translates to being unemployable. So no one would ever give me a real job. <laughs> By virtue of the way I think, sometimes the way I act, <laughs> even maybe the way I speak. Um, <laughs> Everledger began in the heart of London in 2015. And I guess it, it brought together a, my patchwork quilt of experience, uh, both in business and in technology, as well as uh, spending some time in the diamond and jewellery industry since 2007. So it was very clear that the industry, it's 500-year-old industry, um, it's hyper-consolidated geographically uh, as well as with the major participants in the supply chain. But um, it was also facing a series of challenges globally. And one of the big sort of challenges that still existed today uh, was blood diamonds. So we thought if there were new technologies that are being born, it's not necessarily a single threaded um, piece of technology that will solve this problem, but a combination of blockchain and artificial intelligence, machine vision, you know, big data sets um, uh, and a forensic sort of set of technologies to be able to get the identity of a diamond. We built a platform of provenance to enable the traceability from the source of the mine right the way through to the network, retail network. Now, we're five years old uh, next month, actually. Um, so I think we'll be celebrating our birthdays in a true distributed form across all of our offices, right. quarantined in our houses. Um, and that vision has now become true. We have five operational centres, uh, about 100 people in the company. And, um, yeah, we service not only just the diamond industry but coloured gemstones, work in luxury goods um, with some of the leading brands, as well as now looking towards the future, not just asking the question, where does it come from, but asking the question, where does it go to after it leaves me, which is the principal question that's really leading us into building the rails of traceability for the circular economy. So mm -hmm. single time use, you know, we manufacture this thing, but inside of a device, laptops, mobile phones, e-waste is prevalent around the world. We can reuse and repurpose the metals and minerals in that device to either build another device or even maybe put it into the diamond and jewelry industry to make a piece of jewelry. 
Yeah. So for, for the listeners, we are recording this with video. So Leanne was uh, just showing me the smartphone. So that's the device that she was talking uh, about as, as an example. And, and so you were talking that in terms of ad count, uh, you are 100 in, in five uh, operational centers around, uh, around the world. Um, did you, did you raise, uh, can you just tell us a little bit more fundraising uh, data and uh, what investors Sure, are? sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, we raised with some pretty interesting strategic uh, partners, um, Tencent, uh, Bloomberg, Rakuten, and wow. Fidelity would be our main anchoring investors. And we raised about 20 million US dollars um, Uh, that, that round closed actually in around July last year, but we made those announcements in the media in September. And um, Tencent is a pretty cornerstone investor, which enables us to look at mainland China and most of the ASEAN uh, developing countries as a part of our next growth of uh, next phase of growth. Absolutely, that's great. And uh, if if my memory memory is correct, so you have just raised those funds uh, those funds recently, which was a very good timing right before this uh, economic uh, meltdown, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, serendipity. The timing is everything, as they say. There's a great set of entrepreneurial think tanks around the world that subscribe to building a team and getting a product and, you know, having a great founder and a CEO, which of course I subscribe to, but really to be an amazing entrepreneur, a successful, amazing entrepreneur is to be able to understand timing. Timing. Amazing. Very good insights to, to start the show. Um, and so we, we always discuss this three critical ingredients to uh, scale that are also applied to navigate uh, war times. Uh, number one is radical focus. Number two is world-class leadership. And number, number three, uh, culture of execution that we are now pivoting to sense of urgency, but it's all related with, with, with the culture of the company. Uh, and starting with uh, radical focus. So we are in a time that of huge uncertainty. Uh, the good news is that usually entrepreneurs and uh, people who join startups and scale-ups are much more prepared for uncertainty than uh, people that are working in the more established um, industries and, and companies. But there is sometimes a temptation when uh, there is a lot of confusion to go everywhere. And usually as entrepreneurs, we also like to do uh, a lot of things and uh, avoiding the temptation of trying to do too many things and really focus, especially in, in, time is, in times of crisis, it's, it's really important. So um, do you have any, any tips for entrepreneurs that are now trying to understand where should be my focus in, in war times? Where should, where, where, where should I place my number one priority uh, now? Or what is your number one priority during this Uh, war times nowadays? So, uh, look, I do think it's interesting. We've found an, a number of challenges, particularly in the last number of decades, whether it be, um, you know, 9-11 or the dot-com bust and the bubble boom that kind of popped on everyone's face in the global financial crisis. But this pandemic is um, has a, a whole series of other dimensions to it, and that is the safety of our people. Um, so I think in the forefront of everyone's minds is really the safety, the mental health, the physical health of every person within 
the family of the business um, and and the direct family members mm -hmm. of those people in in the business and that's a quite a different dynamic to the likes of a you know a global or an economic recession and the dynamics of this will lead into some form of tightening in the economics globally um, and we've seen those challenges before we know and understand how those markets can react and the types of government stimulus packages that can be put in place but again what is so strikingly different about now is that this is an entire global um, synthesized effort um, which needs to be brought right. together so to a certain extent we are all equal um, in this right. we are all facing every single person in the world is facing this there is no one immune um, to the pressures and the challenges of today I would say we need to be realistic about just how critical um, this virus is, both from an economic standpoint and also from a physicality of um, the human race. And uh, the types of decisions that must be made must be made with both of those lenses in view. Uh, it's not going to be an easy road. I don't think it's something that is just weeks to resolve. It's definitely months and is likely to... Um, probably mark 2020 as an economic amnesia in that we will all want to forget or it became such a blur of stress that we'll have um, a series of moments where what did we do in 2020? It was, you know, something that we can't remember and we would like to all forget. Um, right. I think to be on a war room footing is really important and you need to ensure you have double speed, but ultimately cash is king and liquidity is king. So as much as you're able to reduce variable overheads, human, um, our human resources shaping. Now that might look like a series of activations. It could look like redundancy. That's certainly not the place that Everledger is at, but we are looking at how do we recalibrate the, real, the realization and the reality of our runway, our revenue lines, um, and the construct of our, of our discretionary spends. Um, and, and we may be able to um, think about different ways that we can use uh, our resources, our online resources, and work even more deliberately actually with some core and key customers. But what we're doing at Everledger is thinking about how do we bring together the right set of sort of scrum teams that can use this time to refine, build out, nearly co-innovate in a space where our product becomes even stronger and even more innovative than we have probably ever catered for. So we're spending and splitting our time between the realization of a shrunken operations, because we're certainly not mm -hmm. getting the influx of our customer service requests um, because our customers are too concerned about their own business and rightfully so. Um, and in the meantime, we're starting to now understand what is short-term and long-term strategies and how do we actually double down on our product uh, in this time. So our core engineering team have not stopped. Uh, our head of product and the product and design team are now looking at all sorts of ways upon which we can ensure that the next generation of work that comes out of Everledger is going to rise like a phoenix from the ashes. This is very interesting what you just described. So uh, when we are discussing scaling up, we always say that um, what we need to do is not 
fixing what is not working, but doubling down on what is working. Namely, yeah. uh, so what are the clients that are the most happy with our services that we can even serve, uh, that, that we can serve even better? And what are another customers that are exactly, have exactly the same pain and the same challenges that our current customers have that we can also um, add value to, to them? So, so this maybe this is also a, a good way to face the the crisis. So everyone is trying to, as I said, protect cash. Cash is king. Um, trying to also protect revenue, uh, and protecting revenue is about having very healthy relationships with clients and helping them uh, during those uh, those times. But again, we can't go to all customer base and offer the same kind of um, level of service. So we need to prioritize. Uh, and maybe we need to, to see uh, what are the customers uh, that we want to keep for the long run in t- in, in ter- in, instead of trying to protect all the revenue of customers at the same time and maybe they are not the best fit uh, for, for the future. But this can be very painful in a chaotic situation when we have a, a client trying to negotiate uh, to suspend the account during this period or even to cancel um, the service. So h- how do you react about prioritizing over certain segments or trying to protect all, uh, all customer base? I do think it's interesting because um, it depends on the type of company that you're running. And Everledger uh-huh. is a critical pathway provider in that um, we become a rails, a digital rails of trade. So we're not necessarily a discretionary spend um, to some of our customers. Some of our customers, we certainly are a discretionary spend. Um, and it's those that are a discretionary spend. You can either treat in one or two ways, accept that you are and fold that customer down in the meantime, or alternatively um, consider the types of critical pathway works that they need to undertake and whether um, we have some match fitting into that critical pathway. So move the customer from what was once a discretionary spend into a critical spend commitment. Um, if you're a one product company, that's very difficult to do. But if you're a platform business, which is what we've migrated across to, then that can be done in the strengthening of two different ways. One, you can look at what that opportunity is on a cost modeling and provide for it. Or secondly, you could actually think about doing that through a multitude of partnerships, which is really parts of the work that we're endeavoring on this year is how do we actually build up ever ledger into ever more where we have these complementary partnerships where we're able to actually build out sticky points on our platform. And maybe it's 10% of Everledger's core functionality and mm-hmm. 60% of our partners functionality, but joined together, we solve in a really agile with athleticism, um, a problem that that customer has that, Alone, we couldn't solve, but jointly with our partnerships, we can solve. And that then creates that stickiness in the customer base that wouldn't actually be there if we were just trying to convince them to stay on a subscription service. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a very good, a very, very good point also to, um, to strengthen partnerships in a moment that we have more time to, um, 
to work on those partnerships that usually when everything is going well, it's, it's, it's difficult and then can be a leverage and at the same time help each other uh, moving forward. So uh, number two is, is world-class uh, leadership. Um, part of protecting cash is uh, looking for expenses and providers uh, in our um, uh, p statement and going through also um, what are the team members that might be more affected, affected during this period of crisis. And something that keeps on my mind is how do we, how do, how do we have a, encourage a, a culture of um, being a family, being all together, and at the same time doing very hard decisions of letting some people go if, if necessary. So uh, it is something very difficult to do as a leader, make the hard decision that needs to be made in order to protect all team and the company, but at the same time needing to, to let go um, some people. In, in times of abundance, we typically say that it's very hard to, to let go someone who was so important for us to get here that might not be the right fit for the next uh, stage of growth. That's typically uh, the pain, but letting some, someone go in a situation um, that is not the best one for, for everyone can be also very painful for, for leaders. And at the same time, uh, avoiding that everyone starts feeling the, the fear of, of being the next one to, 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 to be fired, right? Yeah, so I think it just comes with maturity and authentic leadership. You know, there's <laughs> a number of a number of things that sort of play into this dialogue. I guess I sort of subscribe to people that certainly come into my life are there for a reason, a season, or a lifetime. And cool. um, sometimes those um, reasons or the season or the lifetime isn't necessarily um, known in the first meeting, but over time you get to understand when is the right time for that engagement to occur. I mean, there's very pragmatic views in business. It's very simple to be able to see and understand the numbers actually probably to a certain extent um, tell 90% of the trueness of the story. It's the willingness to have that open and authentic conversation that isn't necessarily mm -hmm. driven by a personal agenda, but keeping in mind that a real strength of amazing leadership in crisis times like this is to distinguish the difference between um, being equal and being equitable. So everyone is mm -hmm. equally in the same space, problem space. Everyone is equally sharing probably the same pain and the same concerns and the same, um, the same mental stress. Um, but from an equitable standpoint, people need to be treated um, based on balance, right? So having the ability mm -hmm. to have strong leadership around the definitions of both of those and embracing both of those is probably, um, you know, one of the guiding light principles of making a great and authentic leader and their ability to execute fairly and openly and in just cause. Yeah. Something that is very interesting is also how to organize the team in, in those situations. So we see, it's also curious to see how the different countries are now dealing uh, with the crisis and how they are adapting in different ways and, um, and uh, applying different uh, methods or di different recipes to try to combat um, the, the crisis. 
but uh, what we have been suggesting is people to um, to try to um, set up the the war squads, very small teams where decision making is much more um, easy and and, and uh, fast. Because nowadays uh, the situation changes every single day, and we need to adapt and and reassess and reevaluate and, and make new decisions uh, every single day um, nowadays. So. We were proposing over social, uh, over social media, namely LinkedIn on my own profile, to have uh, kind of free roles for this uh, war squad. Number one is someone uh, accountable for uh, keeping people always updated and also collecting feedback from, from people, the team. Second one is customer, so being aware of what is going on on the customer. And, and finally, the, the third one is, is cash, as we discussed it, uh, before. And adopting an even more cross-functional orientation or way of working during uh, this, this period. So are you adapting in any way uh, in terms of, uh, of the way you organize the team or the decision-making process um, according to the times that we are living nowadays? So, look, I think um, we haven't made any major fundamental changes to the way we work. In fact, it's, you know, we just slid straight into this and we're faring incredibly well. Um, in fact, we're probably getting faster in our delivery mechanism right. <laughs> um, so than ever. Um, but um, I will say, out of your comment of cash, customers and communication, we were already very well geared in internal communication was a functional role of the organisation and that was in well effect well before this crisis hit. Our external and internal comms team are headed up by a very strong leader, um, which I think you've met anyways, Patrick. Um, we also ensure that parts of our communication always has defensibility in our brand, defensibility in our statements. The reasons why we're making these decisions are, are things that should be uh, very clearly understood. But I'll tell you one thing that most people don't do, and they don't tell people what to stop. So in a crisis, there's always so many things to do, and there will always be so much work and so many customers and so many inbounds and so many emails. Um, in a peak of a crisis, um, it takes really well-established leaders to say, we no longer do these three things. You know, you need to stop this now. That often bleeds out for way too long. And so, therefore, you're not getting the throughput, the direct throughput. Even if you had those smaller scrum teams, those smaller scrum teams could be completely exhausted because they're still doing too much because they don't have the, role, the golden rules now of what not to do. It's rather, here's the guiding light of what to do and that's often very broad. So to be really definitive in we stop all these activities now, these are no longer a priority to deliver, you know, into those sort of, you know, two or three horizons. I also think instead of trying to scale the heights in one zenith climb to the top of a mountain, well, let's take some really great um, examples from athleticism or mountaineering. They always um, re-establish their footing in base camps and then in milestone mm -hmm. camps, they re-oxygenate, they rest, and they re-look re at the weather patterning on that next day. You can have the best pinnacle climb to uh, the top of Everest, but unless you're actually weather matching out of the day in the current sequencing and the health of the athlete, um, then you actually can say, we don't, we don't do that climb today. We either go back down or we're going to wait it out for 12 hours. 
And I think that is also um, a part of leadership, those that really understand that leadership isn't all about here's the trajectory plan, now let's go. It's a continuous base camp um, to, a, to a recalibration of the weather system. What's an amazing uh, example, and uh, it's it's a very good introduction to the third point: this culture of execution or sense of urgency. Uh, nowadays, the most important rhythm of the team is is the daily. Uh, some weeks before, it was maybe the the weekly. And so, what what's, what what are some of the rhythms that are important for you to keep your team? On, on the same page and, and focus it on what needs to, to be done and also having the courage, as you said before, uh, to say no to, to some of the, of the priorities that were in the roadmap before. So um, we have to have a multi-gear system within an organization. So daily stand-ups um, at a senior level would not be the best use of the senior executive's time, but certainly daily stand-ups in small scrum teams that are delivering or even, um, you know, half-day DevOps stand-ups is also something that's probably critically important if you've got critical infrastructure. Um, but it's less about the stand-ups and more about, as I said, that weather patterning system and the feedback loops so you can stand up as much as you want on a daily basis or an hourly basis, but if the next horizon or the other piece of the team or um, the equipment isn't ready, then there's no sense in trying to, you know, ladder out. So this dependency between teams is critically important. That baton change, going back to being um, an athlete, when you think about how you baton change with a relay team, you've got to be able to perfect that changeover with the baton. Got it. Cool. That's a very good uh, point again. And uh, yeah, we are coming to the last question of the show and uh, our favorite one, which is if you would have the opportunity to, to meet Leanne five years ago, and uh, what advice would you offer to your younger self? <laughs> well, that question, if you met me five years ago, it was... Um, it was in the middle of London with this burning desire to solve for a grand challenge that I just knew I was right. <laughs> and the advice that I would give to myself looking back was to be a little kinder to myself through the last five years journey that to give myself the time to oxygenate at each of those climbing points to the Zenith, because um, I certainly uh, I certainly probably wasn't as kind to myself as I wanted to be because I was just continuously running around to ensure that I was not only just educating the world on blockchain and educating an industry, but it was also a pretty big journey to make the market. And I think, um, you know, sometimes you lose sight of uh, who you are and the connectedness that's needed uh, outside of just this burning desire to be the change that you want to see in the world. That's uh, amazing. Leanne, thanks so much for inspiring us and for sharing your experience with us and some tips about how to navigate during those uh, these war times that we are all living in.
My pleasure. You've become the best podcast Sherpa I've ever spoken to. So well done. <laughs> Thank you very much. Very kind of you and to our community. Thanks for being on that side. We keep bringing you the best of the best so you can navigate uh, those war times in the most, in the best shape possible. So see you soon. Stay healthy. Uh, stay strong. See you soon.